Daily news and analysis. We keep you informed and inspired. This is World Today. Hello and welcome to World Today. I'm Zhao Yang. Coming up, the 10th Beijing Xiangshan Forum has concluded in the Chinese capital. What new perspectives have been offered to existing global challenges? China and France hold strategic dialogue. What are the major takeaways? Shenzhou 16 Taikonauts have returned to Earth from China Space Station. What have been accomplished during their five months in space? And Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu has rejected calls for a ceasefire with Hamas. Will the conflict spill over into a broader regional crisis? First, on today's show, China has pledged to continue dialogue and exchanges with all parties on global security issues with an aim of expanding international consensus on safeguarding common security. Assistant Foreign Minister Nong Rong made the pledge at the Beijing Xiangshan Forum on security and defense issues. Nong highlighted open communication and cooperation on global security issues, saying China rejects the drawing of ideological lines or actions that provoke division and confrontation. The Chinese diplomat also announced that China will host high-level events on the global security initiative proposed by President Xi Jinping. The aim is to promote a shared commitment to global security and cooperation in addressing emerging threats. The 10th Xiangshan Forum concluded on Tuesday, bringing together over 1,800 representatives from more than 100 countries, regions, and international organizations. For more, we are now joined on the line by Rongying, Vice President and Senior Research Fellow at the China Institute of International Studies. Dr. Rong, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. What do you make of the significance of such a forum um, in its current international security context? Well, I think the uh, 10th Xiangshan, uh, Beijing Xiangshan uh, Forum uh, would, uh, as just concluded, but the significance was stand out in several ways. First and foremost, of course, the size, the uh, sort of the interest expressed by the largest ever, uh, I think, uh, participation uh, in terms, not only in terms of official delegations, but also in terms of the levels. It's been 99 official delegations around the world that been attended that forum. And also 19, I think, uh, uh, defense ministers and uh, 14 uh, uh, chief of army or the defense uh, and also six uh, international organizations. If you look at the numbers, it's, it's, it's uh, 1,080 uh, so the delegates attend the conference. Such a huge and unprecedented, I think, conference. It represents the wide range Interest from the from iPhone from the world. This is indeed making it one of the I think uh, prominent uh, fora, prominent platform for regional, uh, international, econ- uh, excuse me, uh, uh, security dialogue and the cooperation. What are the key highlights or significant topics that were discussed during the three-day event? Yeah, I think there are many. Uh, first and foremost, of course, I believe that at the theme of the conference as forum goes that uh, the uh, all the participants agree that the aspiration for uh, common uh, uh, security uh, and uh, um, lasting uh, peace uh, uh, this is I think even more important as today the world today facing uh, uh, numerous uh, complicated security charges ranging from conflicts local conflicts like the ongoing one in Ukraine and also I think the Palestinian Israel and also I think various kind of non-traditional security uh, threats arising from the changes uh, that, is, that is transformation that taking place in in the regions across the regions and the world the second I think uh, one is of course as I said that uh, the ex- the way that despite the differences and divergences, uh, uh, the, uh, at the forum, one would be very much impressed by the atmosphere, by the readiness, by the, in, uh, I think, the interest to reach out for solution through dialogue, through communication, and through, I think, uh, uh, forums like that to find a, a, 
uh, solutions, find a way out of the current uh, difficulties. This is very much, I think, uh, uh, important. The last but not least is, I think, the role uh, that uh, China uh, plays. Uh, a lot of participants that, as they are looking for answers, I think China has always been the one that most called called for or called on. I think uh, this is, of course, a recognition of the fact that China, as China rises, as China becomes more important, more proactive in terms of not only, I think, find a way to manage this uh, threat, find a way to address this threat, but more importantly in terms of uh, contributing concepts, but also, I think, in terms of practice. So it's a very much uh, uh, important uh, fora. It's a very much, I think, uh, uh, occasion where uh, these uh, experts, participants across the world uh, sit together, share their views, working together, looking for answers, despite the fact that the world is dangerous, is fluid, is unstable. Yeah, and, and China has announced that it will host high-level events on the global security initiative proposed by President Xi Jinping. Uh, so what are the key components of this initiative, and how does China's vision differentiate from, um, say, conventional security concepts that, um, for instance, prioritize the balance of power? Yeah, that's exactly, I think, the reason behind this, I mean, strong interest behind that positive sort of responses and the recognition of the role of this forum. Because China not only contribute, I think, uh, I mean, in terms of organizing and hosting that big event, but more importantly, at the theoretical, at the conceptual level, the most important one is the global security uh, initiated. But remember, I think Global Security Initiative, the uh, major components or uh, ideas are largely focusing on, I think, comprehensive, cooperative, and, uh, 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 and sustainable uh, sort of uh, uh, security, which is in sharp contrast with uh, uh, security uh, based on uh, sort of balanced power. Security based primary, I think, achieved at the express at the expenses of others, uh, and also security achieved through military means. So China provides a different uh, alternative. China provides a kind of different solution, different way to uh, manage and promote uh, security for common security for through dialogue and for through lasting peace. This is, again, I think uh, very much uh, uh, sort of have been noted uh, in the process in the three-day uh, forum. Uh, but how might these concepts and ideas be practically applied in resolving uh, some ongoing global conflicts and crises, for instance? How feasible are they when we face challenges like um, the Ukraine crisis or the Gaza crisis? Uh, that's a great question. I think China has made uh, taken the first step in providing these initiatives, in uh, making uh, contributions in terms of conception, conceptualize these things. And also, I think, at the practical level, China is playing a very important part. Uh, for example, on the question of the Ukraine crisis, China worked very hard, uh, not only, I think, in promoting the idea, the initiative, but in more importantly, come up with concrete, specific proposals. For example, last year, at the G20, I mean the Bali summit, China came up together with others, I mean uh, uh, the uh, uh, green deal uh, to help address the green shortage, green problems of Africa. And China also has called upon uh, uh, parties concerned to for dialogue, for negotiations, for talks. And China also called upon on the question of the ongoing uh, uh, the uh, Palestinian-Israel goes to take into account the security, I mean, the international humanitarian uh, sort of needs by, by following, by following the, uh, the, uh, the international uh, law. And the most important thing, of course, China also called upon the convening, to convene an international peaceful uh, meeting, peace conference, to, to find, a way, uh, find a way out. Uh, and also, China has working 
with uh, developing countries, with Middle East countries in the Middle East, to make sure that uh, to to the, this uh, issue, I mean the the crisis, there's no solution. I mean, except the talks and uh, uh, and negotiations. And on the specific issues of Palestinian and Israel issues, of course, the two-state uh, solution has is has been and always been should be the uh, uh, sort of starting point for negotiations. But the, the most important thing is let's start to first achieve this ceasefire take into account the humanitarian situation, and that would, uh, and in the long run, find a way to implement the two-state solution, which I think is uh, very much endorsed, not only endorsed by the UN, but also, I think, by all the, uh, I mean, majority of members of, of, of the community, including the United States and the West in general. Mm-hmm. Okay, and notably, the United the United States um sent a delegation to participate in the Xiangshan Forum. Uh, what kind of signal is that? Yeah, I think it is uh it is good uh for United States to send a delegation, even though it's not a very high level. Uh, that would at least I think uh, send what can be recognized can be uh, uh understood as a way that they are interested in. Negotiating talks in forums like that, but I was told that the the uh, the participants from the United States, particularly I think the official ones, they are not so uh, active. <laughs> they are not so I think uh, uh, in a way that uh, being uh, reaching out in in a in an interactive way. Whatever the case, I think uh, uh, the uh, United States should uh, uh, listen. Uh, and uh, take note very carefully and see in a serious way of the voices of the uh, i think the aspirations that expressed by the uh, the uh, the, uh, the participants and a lot of them i have to say that they are from developing countries which uh, i think i would highlight this is also one of the aims the purposes for this forum provide a forum for developing countries which their voices in the past has been ignored or overlooked by other uh, forums in the West and others. So this is something I think the United States really have to take care of. Representing the lot, the voice of developing countries is much more important in today's world. Yes, and, and in terms of China-U.S. relations, um, Chinese former ambassador to the U.S., Cui Tiankai, said during at the forum that although many in both countries have realized that if conflict and confrontation occur, the world would face catastrophe. Um, but this does not mean that we can automatically avoid this worst-case scenario by adopting a lying flat attitude. How do we understand this briefly? Yeah, I, I, Ambassador Cui certainly, I think, is such an experienced uh, diplomat. And he personally, not only I think getting involved, I mean in terms of practice, but also being following, I mean the 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 as a career. I mean I think a majority of a career diplomat. So his advice, his ideas are very much important and relevant in today's uh, uh, in today's China India uh, excuse me China U.S. relationship. When after the recent frequent high level interactions. Uh, communications. The, 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 there are signs that uh, the relationship is becoming stabilized, and the, the two sides also agreed during the recent uh, visit by uh, Wang Yi, Minister Wang Yi, to work together for a possible summit meeting at the sideline of APEC in the next month. But Wang Yi also uh, advised, uh, as I think Ambassador Tsui said, that the road to San Francisco. Is not may not be uh, smooth as smooth may not be as smooth or safe sailing, and uh, we cannot sort of uh, uh, make it as autopiloting. That I think a different way, uh, different way of expressing that uh, uh, the relationship will not should not take for granted. Uh, mm-hmm. Take this momentum. We need to work hard. But the most important thing I think the United States need to work together with China to. By following, implementing, following through the consensus, but more importantly, work with China positively to build up uh, an atmosphere leading to a to a possible uh, uh, summit, so that the relationship will be brought back to the right track as early as possible. Thank you, Rongying, Vice President and Senior Research Fellow at the China Institute of International Studies. 
China and France have agreed to promote strategic dialogue, deepen bilateral relations, and work together to cope with global challenges. Senior Chinese diplomat Wang Yi co-chaired the China-France strategic dialogue with French presidential diplomatic counselor Emmanuel Bonne in Beijing. Wang Yi called on both sides to build on their comprehensive strategic partnership based on mutual respect and win-win cooperation. Bond said France has confidence in China's economy and has no intention to restrict China's development. For more, we are now joined by Cui Hongjian, professor with the Academy of Regional and Global Governance at Beijing Foreign Studies University. Professor Cui, thanks for joining us. Hi. So, what are your major takeaways from、uh, the China-France strategic dialogue? As we know, I think it's a, a showcase of the how could China and France try to continue their high-level、uh, dialogue, including this、uh, strategic dialogue one. As we know,、uh, this year we witnessed a, a comprehensive、uh, restart of the uh, uh, cooperation and exchange between China and the European countries. Especially, I think this、uh, dialogue between China and France has its、uh, very special. Uh, symbol and also very special meanings、uh, for stabilize the relations、uh, between China and France and also between China and Europe at a large. Yeah, and and Wang Yi said that as independent major countries, China and France should shoulder their own responsibilities. How do you interpret this? And and also in the context of the current global tensions and challenges, what specific challenges? I mean, what specific responsibilities do you think both countries should take on、uh, to contribute to international stability and cooperation? You will also know this、uh, strategic dialogue, also this、uh, exchange between China and the European countries,、uh, not only on the level of the uh, uh, China and France, but certainly uh, France uh, has some specific、uh, meaning for Chinese、uh, policy towards Europe.、Uh, not only because of its、uh, history,、uh, its、uh, first uh, Western countries to recognize、uh, China. Since、uh, 1949, and also、uh, France is a, a member of a permanent uh, uh, member for the uh, European uh, uh, for the、uh, United Nations Security Council. So certainly, this uh, uh, dialogue between China and France always have some more uh, strategic uh, uh, significance. So I think now for China and France,、uh, because now we are living.、Uh, Uh, in a stable world, more and more uncertainties,、um, only for the policies and also for the、uh, relations between China and Europe, between China and some other Western countries. So, in this background, I think this、uh, uh, strategic dialogue between China and France will give some uh, special zeal、uh, uh, to help the stability of this uh, uh, exchange of dialogue between China and. And the Western countries, and also, as we know,、uh, for China and、uh, France, certainly, both those two countries should take some more,、uh, you know, responsibilities to help the regional、uh, stability. Firstly, and then uh, both uh, those two、uh, members for P5 in United Nations, they also will have some common responsibility to help. This、uh, strategic stability、mm. on the global level. Yes, and and Bond said that France attaches importance to China's status and role in the world and has no intention to restrict China's development. How do you look at those statements? On this regard, I think the、uh, French side is、uh, repeat repeating the uh, uh, you know the uh, uh, stance from uh, uh, European Union, as we know. Earlier、uh, this month, the,、uh, Mr. Borrell, the High Representative of uh, uh, Security and Foreign Policy of United Nations、uh, of European Union,、uh, visited China, and uh, he uh, uh, mentioned this uh, uh, perception from the European Union on China. I uh, uh, stand uh, showed that、uh, the European Union and also France try to keep some distance. Uh, on its policy towards China, from American policy towards China, as we know, always now there are some 
very, very deep suspicion from Chinese side on American policy towards China is United States is trying to, uh, you know, change the conditions uh, of China's development and try to, uh, you know, uh, worse the situation of Chinese uh, trade, economy, and technology, and so on. So I think now uh, European countries, especially France, try to keep the distance uh, with the American and try to find out its own position to help uh, its uh, maybe further cooperation with China. Okay, but do you see a shift in in in, in Europe's uh, strategic priorities? Because uh, you know, uh, the concept of strategic autonomy used to be very popular in Europe's corridors of power, but uh, and it appears that policymakers in Europe nowadays are uh, shifting their focus toward de-risking and aligning with uh, Washington's efforts to to reduce their economic independent. Uh, I mean, dependence on China. I mean, uh, do you think that's that's the case? And how, how do you look at that? Certainly, uh, nowadays, uh, the relations between China and Europe become more and more complex and also even more challenging for both the sides. Uh, not only because of the, uh, uh, the whole environment of the uh, uh, global affairs and uh, international order, and also, as we know, uh, now in Europe, for some countries, they do have some uh, debates. Uh, it's a policy towards China. Uh, certainly now the uh, discussion is uh, keep going on, and uh, always some uh, different views, uh, like uh, the risking with China, or even some more tougher uh, uh, attitude towards China from other. But now I think the important thing is for both sides, especially for European side, it's very necessary to make clear what the real interests. Uh, for European countries, and how could China do something to help the whole situation? I mean, not only the economic trade and also security concerns from the European side. Of course, it will take some more time, but I believe that uh, finally the European side will understand what's a real interest of its own, and then uh, it will, you know, uh, take some uh, more reasonable uh, reasons to continue its cooperation with China. Yeah, and, and actually Wang Yi highlighted that China and Europe are partners, not rivals, and their common interests far outweigh their differences. Um, I, I mean, how, how do we understand this? As we know, uh, so, uh, one of the bigger reasons for uh, those uncertainties or instability uh, in the relations between China and Europe is uh, since uh, 2019. Uh, European side uh, tried to change its uh, perception of China <coughs> and has this so-called market-faced uh, concept or the, the uh, definition about China, uh, namely uh, partner, uh, competitor, and also rival. I think now uh, for European side, uh, it's tried to keep some uh, kind of uh, balance between the different uh, definition and the policy direction. But as we know, in the practice, uh, it seems to be uh, fair to uh, you know, keep this balance. So I think it will give some more lessons for European side to find out that only uh, cooperation, not a competition or even uh, a confrontation would be a right way uh, for both uh, China and uh, Europe to get some more common interests and uh, common benefits. Okay, thank you to Hongjian, professor with the Academy of Regional and Global Governance at Beijing Foreign Studies University. More to come, Shenzhou 16 Taikonauts have returned to Earth from China Space Station. What have been accomplished during their five months in space? Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu has rejected calls for a ceasefire with Hamas. Will the conflict spill over into a broader regional crisis? And remind our listeners, if you want to hear this episode again or to catch up on previous episodes, you can download our podcast by searching World Today. And you can also follow us on Next at CGTN Radio. You're listening to World Today. We'll be back in a minute.
You're listening to World Today. I'm Zhao Ying. China's Shenzhou 16 crew members, who have been in the orbiting Tiangong space station for nearly five months, have safely returned to Earth. This comes after they handed over control of Tiangong to the Shenzhou 17 crew. Taikonos Jinghaipeng, Zhu Yangzhu, and Gui Haichao landed in northern China early Tuesday. Commander Jinghaipeng hailed the crew's teamwork. I think this trip to China's space station is a wonderful experience for me, and、uh, I want to also say on behalf of my, my partners, my two partners, for their wonderful experience and performance. They have done such a great job, and we led a, a happy life and efficient work. For more, we're now joined on the line by Zhang Fen, associate professor of astronomy department of Beijing Normal University. Professor Zhang, thanks for joining us. So、uh, we know that、uh, the Shenzhou 16 mission marks a significant achievement for China's space program.、Uh, can you provide an overview of the mission's primary objectives and accomplishments during the five months in space? Right, the、uh, Shenzhou 16 mission, the, the, this crew, they are the first、uh, crew during the,、uh, the so-called operation and development phase of the、uh, space station. That means after construction.、Um, The, uh, the space station is, is now run as a, a regular sort of national laboratory for science,、um, scientific investigation, and they, they being the first crew going up there to do this job.、Um, so one of their, their main tasks、um, is, is to actually streamline the,、uh, the, the operational procedures.、Um, so they develop the、uh, supply management system,、um, substantially increase the,、uh, the efficiency. This is really important. Um, things like counting infantry, making sure only the important stuff gets,、um, you know, taken up,、um, saves a lot of,、uh, you know,、um, outgoing payload,、uh, which are really expensive to do. And also, they did 70 experiments during their time up there.、Um, they went out there to install experiments on our side, and、um, and they did all the regular things that we would expect from a six-month stay mission up there. Yeah, so the crew reported living and working efficiently in space without any operational mistakes.、Uh, can you elaborate on the challenges and preparations that contribute to such a successful mission?、Um, so on the ground, as, as astronauts, they receive training, substantial training that that,、um, that benefits from、uh, from the existence of, of large facilities such as the、uh, the, the ones that, that simulate space environments.、Um, They have entire pools to, to simulate zero gravity, things like that, and also the、uh, simulations of the launch environment. So that part of the training is the more sort of standard astronaut training、uh, that that people always go through. And given past experiences,、um, you know the, the, the training are, are very good and, and more than sufficient.、Um, what they have to go through that the other astronauts perhaps、um, went through less is, is that、um, they. They have to do so many experiments in、uh, in material science, in combustion, in fluid mechanics, in in biology, so all of different things. They not seventy of them. They not only have to be able to do the operations,、um, like they they have to understand to some extent what they are actually doing, and that is 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 a steep learning curve、um, to cover such broad subject area. And, and to gain gain a, a preliminary understanding, so that I think is, is the most significant thing that that, that happened to this crew.、Mm-hmm. Well, they also the Takunos、uh, they took a high definition panoramic image of the space station,、uh, you know, combination with、uh, Earth as the background, which is the first of its kind. How significant is this? Right.、Um, th- this is mostly for、uh, outreach purposes.、Mm-hmm. Um, There, there are cameras mounted on the outside of the space station, and there are spacewalks going out there to raise their to raise them up, so they so they have a better field of view. So those cameras already have a good coverage of the outside of the space station, anyways.、Um, so for anything specific,、uh, those cameras will be sufficient.、Um, ha- but having this、uh, this panoramic view of of space station, the the, the entire space station. Uh, with the,、uh, the the Earth being the, the beautiful marble,、uh, blue marble in the background, it, it really is an it is a means to provide a 
inspiring picture so that young people can get them, you know, get inspired to to go out there uh, and fill the shoes of this, uh, this their their forecomers um, and, and eventually uh, push China's space program uh, even further. Yes. Um, so now the Shenzhou 17 mission is, is marking another significant step in China's space program. Uh, so what are the objectives of this mission and what specific tasks uh, that the crew will undertake during their six month stay in the space station? Um, so they're the second crew for the, uh, for the operation and development phase. So they will also be doing a lot of experiments. Um, however, uh, what's different this time is the, the, with the Shenzhou 17 crew is that two of the, uh, the novices, so usually you have one senior person that had really a lot of experience uh, taking two novices to train them up. And this time, um, the two novices, they're both pilots. They're not payload specialists or uh, flight engineers like the uh, Shenzhou 16 mission, which means there's more of a training aspect going on with the Shenzhou 17 mission um, so that they want these two pilots to uh, to get trained really fast, so they can become commanders of follow-on missions. Um, correspondingly, uh, some of the tasks are more difficult uh, in terms of um, you know space maneuvers. Uh, for example, they will have to go out there and repair the, um, the solar panels. It's not really damaged to, to to an extent that you have to repair it. It's just something that. That's difficult enough and, uh, and, and meaningful enough for them to actually be doing uh, and gain a first-hand experience of doing the uh, the most difficult spacewalks. Um, so, so, so I think this 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 will be the most significant difference um, for this crew. I see. So, looking ahead, what major space missions or projects are on the horizon for China? Um, so, there's the lunar mission. Um, before 2030, uh, there will be. Uh, human landing on the moon. And then after that, uh, before 2033, um, there will be a, a phase one um, lunar research station, which will consist of some probes already been sent there. So, so the, the astronauts there will, will begin doing some rudimentary scientific experiments. And after that, uh, there will be substantial mobility on the moon, uh, which means they can carry out quite, uh, quite amazing uh, large-scale scientific experiments. Uh, there's also missions to go and collect samples from asteroids, um, a sample collect mission from uh, from Mars, and then going out to uh, to moons of Jupiter, and then all the way out to um, to, to to the edge of the solar system by the uh, by the middle sort of uh, uh, middle century. Mm-hmm. So, so quite a lot. Yes, thank you, Dr. Zhang Fen, Associate Professor of Astronomy Department of Beijing Normal University. You're listening to World Today. Stay with us. You're listening to World Today. I'm Zhao Yang. Israel has continued bombing the Gaza Strip even as the UN calls for a humanitarian ceasefire. Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu said there will be no ceasefire until Hamas is dismantled. Currently, supplies of food, water, fuel, and medicines for Gaza's 2.2 million residents are dangerously low. More than 8,300 people in Gaza have been killed, including over 3,400 minors. For more, we are now joined on the line by Zhang Chuchu, Deputy Director at the Center for Middle Eastern Studies at Fudan University. Professor Zhang, thanks for joining us. Oh, hello. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. So Netanyahu has rejected calls for a ceasefire, and he says uh, that would mean surrender to Hamas. Uh, could you explain the motives behind uh, his firm stance? Uh, yeah, okay. So I think that um, we should look at the issue um, from a historic perspective. So actually, um, from the past experience, Israel used to be surrounded by the Arab countries, and the thing it has always been doing is that uh, it has a strategy and that is to... Um, that is a cumulative um, deterrent. And that means that since its founding, it tries to shape the image of it's going to um, take revenge to counter any threat it faces. So right now, I think the tactic of Israel is just to um, continue to make a high-profile response. And actually, you see that these days, it even goes so far as to criticize the United Nations. And it's saying the United Nations is not having an ounce of legitimacy. And I think the aim is to send a signal. Uh, it wants to show that Israel is not going to seize the war, and even the opinion of the international community can not stop its violent behavior. 
Okay, but you know, a recent poll said that eighty percent of Israelis think Netanyahu should be held responsible for the October seventh attack by Hamas.、Uh, what factors do you think may have contributed to this widespread sentiment? Yeah. Okay. So first of all,、um, I'm not saying that okay,、uh, whatever Hamas is doing is like 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 is all correct. But when we analyze the conflict, it is important to place the whole thing under a broader context. And you see, on the one hand, historically speaking, there is a fundamental dispute between Israelis and Palestinians regarding the territorial problems, etc. And by labeling this action operation as Aksa Storm, actually Hamas hopes to create an Impression that it is taking revenge on the previous race as、uh, as Aksa compound. So、um, you see that China has always been coherent, and we say that if you don't look at the fundamental issues, you're not going to solve the problem. And on the other hand, you see、uh, the United States has actively promoted the Middle Eastern reconciliation、uh, over the past few years,、uh, and it tries to do so by bypassing and、uh, marginalizing、um, the Palestinian issues. And it tries to facilitate the peace talks between Israel and the other Arab countries, like、um, the Emirates and like、uh, and Morocco, for instance,、uh, under the Abraham Accords. And what the White House has recently been doing is、uh, it tries to um, um, you know、um, promote a peace talk between Saudi Arabia and Israel. And Hamas is afraid that okay, if this process、um, goes on, that it means that the Palestinian issue will be marginalized. Yes, yes, but what what is the view of the international community now, especially Western allies, on Israel's handling of the conflict and、uh, Prime Minister、uh, Benjamin Netanyahu's leadership during the crisis? And what impact has Israel's approach had on its global support? Well, yeah,、uh, actually, I would say that in fact、um, there has been a lot of pressure from the public opinion, and also there is diplomatic pressure on Israel because, as you can see. Um, so um, there are 120 countries、uh, who were in favor of the ceasefire resolution of the United Nations、um, General Assembly. Well, yes, on the one hand, people can say that, well, even if you have this resolution, and what can you do if you can't force um, Israel um, to stop if it doesn't want to? And already, Israel has said they're not going to stop. But you see, the results actually it means something. Um, because the vote itself, it itself reflects a sense of public support and international recognition, and Israel knows that, and that is why it has a big response over that. Yeah, and 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 the Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu's speech is is trying to send a message to the international community by stressing that Israel's fight is your fight. I mean, how convincing is that argument? Yeah.、Um, so first of all, yes,、uh, Prime Minister Netanyahu has made his own like, statement. But the thing is,、um, first of all,、um, will the problem、um, be solved、um, by Israel's proposal?、Uh, that, that is the first thing. And the second thing is, how can the other countries benefit from siding with Israel? So you see,、um, past empirical、um, evidence shows that whatever the outcome of the ongoing armed conflict, further violence won't be prevented. If you don't look at the fundamental、um, issues, right? And so,、um, if fundamental solutions are not implemented for the Palestinian issues,、um, you're not going to achieve the real peace. And also, like the humanitarian crisis is there, and everybody is watching it, and it's hard for the international community to just ignore it, right?、Mm-hmm. Uh, and also, for instance, when you talk about the other like、uh, countries,、um, such as European countries, and you should also take into consideration. That the Middle Eastern affairs is also closely linked to their own、um, domestic politics. For instance, you can see that、um, there are a large number of、um, Muslims living in Europe, so、um, they cannot just say, "Okay, we support Israel and that's all," because they also have to consider their own domestic concerns.、Um, so, and that, that is an important reason like, why、um, they had abstention. Well, the United States has also rejected a global calls for a ceasefire, even though it looks quite isolated in opposing such a truce. But what do you make of the U.S. rationale, and how does it affect the situation on the ground in Gaza? Yeah. Okay. I I think that、um, actually the United States it has several concerns, and first of all,、uh, you know that there is a highly influential Jewish interest group, and within the United States itself. 
So um, basically, um, a lot of like, American presidents, um, they like to make statements or actions on the Palestine-Israel issue, uh, especially um, during the election campaign, which is very important for them. And the second thing is, you see, um, in the early days, actually, um, the, the big powers that used to dominate the order in the Middle East were Britain and France, um, which are the old colonial powers. And at that time, actually, the United States not that powerful, and it didn't have a role uh, in the Middle East. But as a latecomer, how did it interfere with the issues in the region? And actually, Israel and Palestinian issue is an important one. And that is, and by, you know, um, getting involved in this kind of issue, um, it tried to um, make a bigger role in the region. And the third thing is, you know, Israel is a military power in, in the Middle East, and also is an ally of the United States. So therefore, um, uh, Washington has always hoped to use Israel as its agent. Uh, that's the point. Um, so in this way, it can influence the situation in the Middle East. And therefore, um, it can also, like, by using an agent to do something for you, then you can reduce the cost of direct intervention. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but you see, at the same time, actually, um, today, uh, in the United States, it has already felt the pressure from the international community and that is why I think that uh, United States President Biden, he has recently had talks with Israeli Prime Minister Netanyahu that you should really um, make a differentiation between the CBD and Palestine and Hamas. Yes, uh, but, you know, what is the Biden administration's endgame in Gaza? Um, like, does the U.S. or Israel have a plan about what the next steps will be, particularly regarding the governance of Gaza? Because, you know, Biden has um, called on Israel not to repeat the U.S. mistakes after 9-11. But does the U.S. itself also needs to learn from its past mistakes, perhaps? Yes. So, first of all, it has to learn the lesson that it had in a past uh, in, in the region of the Middle East. And actually, right now, a conflict that goes out of control actually is not a preferred option for Biden himself because he is running for the election. And also, in general, you see that the United States is trying to pull itself out of the region in general, which we often call it strategic um, contraction. So I think that right now, maybe um, Biden has both plan A and plan B. So if the conflict in the end I mean, it doesn't want, it doesn't want to see a real uh, escalation. But if in the end, let's say the conflict keeps um, escalating, then maybe um, Washington needs to want to find new benefits from the situation. And in doing so, probably we can, probably they are thinking that they can take the opportunity and create some problems for, let's say, Syria and Iran. And that is why it's sending so many like navies to place. But you see, this is a really dangerous move. Mm-hmm. Yes, thank you, Zhang Chuchu, Deputy Director at the Center for Middle Eastern Studies at Fudan University. U.S. President Joe Biden unveiled a new executive order on artificial intelligence. It's the U.S. government's first action of its kind to require new safety assessments, equity and civil rights guidance, and research on AI's impact on the labor market. So why is the U.S. making this move to set parameters around AI at this time? And what should be done by the international community to regulate the rapid development of AI? For more on this, my colleague Zhao Yang spoke earlier with Einar Tengen, senior fellow at Taihe Institute. So, Anna, first of all, Joe Biden unveiled a new executive order on artificial intelligence requiring AI developers to share the safety results with the U.S. government. So how do you view this move? This is more optics than substance. Uh, what he's done is this is not a law. This is an executive order. It's promulgated under a defense act, uh, in essence, saying that uh, this is a, a threat to national security. Um, but it doesn't have any uh, prescriptions. If you violate it, uh, what, what, you know, what is going to happen to you? So it really is just laying out uh, some sort of idea about uh, the government side, uh, how they want to regulate AI. And the U.S. measures include creating new safety and security standards for AI, protecting consumer privacy, etc., etc. So what stood out to you? And does it have enough teeth? Well, unfortunately, it doesn't, and it's kind of halfway. You have uh, half the industry saying that uh, this is, doesn't go far enough, it doesn't really lay out anything specific, and then the other half is saying, look, you know, this is a, a violation, this is government creating more red tape 
over an area they don't understand, creating and promulgating uh, ideas which are just simply going to uh, prevent the development of AI. So everybody is unhappy. In terms of teeth, no, there isn't a lot of teeth in it. Uh, that would have to be something that Congress attends to, and right now Congress is otherwise occupied. Mm. And technology that has a global impact needs global action. So what kind of international cooperation do you think is needed to set and implement the AI standards around the world? This really needs to be a worldwide standard and not just, uh, you know, you have the G7 saying they're about to produce something you have uh, Europe uh, that is uh, more prescriptive. I mean, they're they're harder. They've set uh, uh, harder edges in terms of what they think is acceptable, not acceptable. Then you have the U.S. Of course, China has uh, put a pitch in that there should be a global compact that countries should come together. But hopefully, that will also include the global South and other countries because if they're left behind and out of this, you're once going to once again be creating a have and have not situation that's unsustainable. Mm. And do you think that all nations, regardless of their size, strength, or the social system, should have equal rights on the AI development? Well, equal rights, I mean, development is something that mostly happens in the private sector. But what you don't want to do is have uh, the large nations try to ensure that they have a monopoly on this type of of, uh, technology. I mean, there are a lot of advantages and disadvantages to this. Uh, it can be used to manipulate public opinion, elections, etc. It can be, uh, you know, be a very, very powerful misinformation tool. Uh, this is something where it has to be a global. It should be a global governance issue handled by the UN, where there's consensus about how this should be used in a constructive way, and all nations obey it. Because if other, if a few nations say no, we're not going to obey it, they can be, you know, basically a petri dish for. Uh, bad things that are being uh, used there, and that's not going to be useful to the world. Mm. And China has called for equal rights on the AI development. Uh, China says it's ready to boost exchanges with other countries to promote the healthy, orderly, and safe AI. So what does this tell us about China's vision for AI governance? Well, that it's sharply different from the U.S. and the typical Western view, which is that AI should be hoarded, it should be kept to private companies, Uh, and the government should support that. Uh, China has taken a different track. They've said uh, categorically that the future means a shared future uh, for mankind, and that means that you cannot be closing people out of technological advancements which will affect them. And this includes AI as well as many, many other sectors. So real clear division between China, who says that sharing technology is the key to a sustainable uh, fairer world uh, versus traditional post-45 models, which said, no, it belongs to whoever uh, develops it, and they get to use it as a monopoly. Mm. And China's initiative also says that China opposed using AI technologies to manipulate the public opinions, spread disinformation, or intervene in other countries' internal affairs. So what's your take on this, and how to minimize the risk of the AI development from your perspective? Well, I mean, AI development is dynamic. Uh, we, we don't know what's going to happen in the future. We do know that there are a lot of dangers. Uh, they've been talking about watermarking, uh, you know, electronically watermarking information that's being created by AI so it can be uh, different from original information. Uh, then you have, you know, what they have, the U.S. has proposed the sandbox uh, idea where, you know, you have to, you know, allow your AI to be examined within this sandbox and do that. China probably will look at the same, but you don't want to have, you know, five, you know, hundred different sandboxes with different rules. It's just like trade. If you want this to work and uh, be useful, there should be an, uh, an idea, a way of getting to a common sandbox uh, with rules so that this information can be used globally And do you think there is a race between the certain countries over setting the global rules and standards in the AI development? Well, yes, race. I mean, you you saw Great Britain saying that, oh, we're going to hold a conference. (laughs) We're going to be the center of AI uh, compliance and and, uh, regulation. 
well, I, and that's not the way it works. It's, you know, that was the old way. The, uh, the British would say, hey, we're doing this, and you, know, you guys have to go along. This is a world in which uh, there has to be consensus. Uh, it has to be cooperative. So the idea is it should probably be under the auspices of uh, the United Nations uh, so that all uh, countries uh, can participate. It might take a little bit longer, but in the end, unless you have these sovereign nations agreeing, you will not have a standard. You'll just simply have a fabric with too many holes plugged up, and therefore uh, you'll be creating problems for yourself long term. It's better mm-hmm. to take the hard way and get consensus. Mm-hmm. And what should be done by the international community, do you think, to regulate the AI development and at the same time make sure that uh, human beings can still benefit from this powerful technology? If I had the answer to that, <laughs> I'd be worth a lot of money. Um, no, I mean, it, it is an ongoing process. It's dynamic. Uh, there are going to be, continues to be, continue to be breakthroughs in AI. In terms of how you regulate it, you have to set standards. What you saw with China saying, look, here's the things it should not do. It should not interfere in other countries. It should not be used for evil means. Then the question is, how do you make sure that that happens? You can create these sandboxes, which you know basically means you, you run this AI within a, a constricted area. You see what it does, you test it, and then uh, it's okay. But there has to be standards like that. You don't want to have uh, so many different little sandboxes. That's the equivalent of each country having its own uh, regulations uh, for trade. It doesn't work in the long run because it's too difficult. Uh, companies can't learn all the different uh, areas, and it becomes uh, not productive. There should be common goals, and hopefully they will be reached. That's Einar Tangen, senior fellow at Taihe Institute, speaking with my colleague Zhao Yang. And that's all the time we have for this edition of World Today. To listen to this episode again or to catch up on previous episodes, you can download our podcast by searching World Today. And for more discussion, you can follow us on X CGTN Radio. I'm Zhao Yang. Thank you so much for listening. See you next time.